encourage you to open your Bible with me to the book of John chapter 17. John chapter 17. I'm going to read the first 10 verses and we will focus on 6 through 10. Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you've given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you. And they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. Let's pray again. Father, we do ask for clarity. Help us to understand your word. And we can't do that without your spirit whom you have sent. So we ask that you would illumine our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. In the legal system that we have, there's an allowance to solve legal matters through a mediation, through the process of mediation. And mediation, as you probably already know, but it's an interactive process that it uses an impartial third-party person to neutrally assist between the disputing parties. In Harvard Law, they produced an article speaking of what makes a good mediator. What makes a good mediator? And the whole point of their article was to show that a good mediator is one whom both parties can trust. Because if both parties can trust this mediator who's standing between them, then they trust that this mediator has their, their best interest in mind to bring them to a resolution. Now, there is a much, this profession of mediation, it is a much needed profession in our state, in our culture, especially in just our highly litigious culture that we have. This is an honorable profession for one who can come between two disputing parties and bring them to a resolution instead of going through all of the bouts of the court system. Like, this is, it's pretty commendable. But I also think that because of that structure of mediation that we tend to view the biblical view of Christ's mediation in a skewed way sometimes. That we tend to bring these secular views of mediation when we think of who Christ is as our mediator. Now, what do I mean by that? Is that, well, when we think of Christ as our mediator, there, in that context, it's not as in the same sense where there are two parties in the wrong where now he's coming in between these two parties and, and bringing us back together. We don't need a mediator to bring the two together to reach a favorable outcome. If you think about it, from our perspective, like, we were hopeless and dead. Like, it's not as if he's bridging the gaps together. He's compromising on both ends and bringing it to a resolution. But rather, Christ as the mediator, he is on one side. He's not standing for both sides in that sense. He's on one side, and that's the side of righteousness. 
And yes, what he does do for us is he brings us to that side, but he is not standing in the middle and we're just making our way halfway to him and then he takes us the other half to God. But no, Christ as the mediator looks upon us in a hopeless state and he brings us to the right state because we were in the wrong the whole time and he was always in the right and he brings us to the right. He doesn't meet us halfway. Rather, he came down (laughs) so we can go up. And he is the perfect mediator. He's on one side. He's from the Father. And as the high priest, he truly is sinless. He truly is perfect. He is the perfect mediator. And if you think about it, if he were not your advocate before the Father, you would be in an eternally hopeless state. If he were not the mediator that he is, we would be hopeless. There would be no hope. Because it's not about us seeking our way to him in our own strength so he can take us the rest of the way. He had to come down completely and condescend so that we can go to him. Christ willingly serves as our mediator to the Father so that any who comes to him might be saved. And that's the good news. In your Bibles, the subtitle on the top of chapter 17, which it probably says in your Bible like it says is mine, is it says the high priestly prayer. The high priestly prayer. And it says that for a reason. The phrase isn't there in the original text in the Greek, but it rightly su- summarizes what Christ is doing here. As the high priest, he's doing what? He's praying. He is mediating, and he is mediating through prayer. Christ is standing as our high priest. And in this passage, as we began to look at last week, but now even more in verses 6 through 10, we begin to see more now of his role as a mediator or as an intercessor. It gives us a greater view of Christ as our intercessor, that he is one who stands before us, stands before the Father for us so that we can come to the Father. And so what this, these verses here should do in verses 6 through 10 is give us a greater appreciation of him as our intercessor. What it, this should do is give you a greater appreciation that should produce greater worship for him as your mediator. I just love this prayer here because this is between the son and the father, and we could never have heard it. He, if it's even what, if it was never in our Bible, it still would have happened because he prayed it. But the fact that the disciples are now listening in on what is being prayed, this is for our edification. To see who is Christ as a mediator for you. And how does that inform your worship and your appreciation for who he is and what he did on your behalf? As we looked at last week, verses 1 through 5, Jesus is praying for himself. In verses 6 through 19, he's praying for his disciples. And in verses 20 through 26, he's praying for all believers. Now, leading to this point, just soon before his death on the cross, his disciples were understandably concerned, knowing that he was leaving them. They had walked with him for three years, saw his glory, and he said, I'm leaving you? They were understandably concerned. And yet, in this Lord's prayer here that they're listening in on, what they're seeing first as a priority, as what we saw last week, is the priority of the Son. It's for his glory. 
His priority, first and foremost, is about him. And even though that's his priority, look where he spends most of his time in this prayer, praying for his disciples. So yes, his priority is his glory, but look how much his love is emphasized for his own in spending more time praying for them. And they're hearing in on this and hearing their Lord praying for them fervently on their behalf. And they're seeing their work here as the intercessor right before their eyes that the Lord Jesus Christ is praying for me. And so he spends more time in this high priestly prayer praying for others than himself while still holding that the priority is the glory of God and the Son. So now as he's transitioning his prayer now to his disciples in verses, starting at verse 6, he's, he's starting with them, but he still does not ask anything yet. There's still no petition made for them yet. It's transitioning. He's praying about them, but notice in verses 6 through 10, there's no specific prayer being petitioned for them yet. That doesn't happen until after verse 10. He makes no requests, no specific petition. So what is he doing there if he's transitioning in this point? Verses 6 through 10, he begins to summarize his work as a mediator in the past. And then he looks at the present effects of that mediation. And then he even looks toward the future with his disciples in mind. So now as he's transitioning, praying for his disciples, he's, he's summarizing now his work as a mediator on earth. And now he's looking at the present effect of that mediation. And then he's looking even forward with his disciples in mind. And again, while he is foremost speaking about his disciples, I want us to remember here, there's no implication in these verses here that does not apply to you, believer, today. He's first and foremost praying for specifically his disciples, but every implication in verses 6 through 10 also applies to you. And so don't hear this just as something that he's praying in historic in, in, in past as if that's for them. You must understand in order to get a good appreciation for who Christ is as a mediator and your mediator, that what he's praying is not just for them, but by extension, it applies to you. And what I want this passage to do for us this morning is if you do understand his true mediation and his ministry as a high priest, then you should understand the great desperation that you must have coming to him as your mediator. And I want us to walk away with viewing us, viewing him in greater need of him. That I want us to first see our desperation of our need of a mediator. Because again, if he did not come we would be hopeless. I want us to see how desperate you are for a mediator, one who can come down for you in your place and bring you to the Father so that you can understand who he is in his greatness and be eternally grateful for the glory in his Son. I want you to see this because if you see that desperation that we needed a mediator, I needed someone to bring me to God, then it will inform your worship and give you greater joy. And that's what he wants for his disciples. As he says time and time through the upper room discourse, I say this for your joy so that your joy may be complete. 
And so I want to see not only our desperation, that we needed a mediator. We need a high priest. I need someone who is perfect and righteous. I need someone who can stand in my place and declare me faultless even in my sin. I need him. And at the same time, I can look upon him and worship him because the one I needed came. He came for you, beloved. He came for you. So let's examine his role as our great high priest. I want to use the same structure that he did so that we can be moved by his greatness. So we're just going to examine his role as a high priest by examining it in its completion, examining it in its effect, and examining it in its scope. Examining his role as a high priest in its completion, in its effect, and its scope. So we examine it in its completion. He begins in verse 6, and he's basically saying now, turning to his disciples, he's praying to the Father, and he's basically saying, Father, I have completed the work now in them. But let's look at it in his words. Verse 6, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your words. He says, I have manifested your name. Now, why would he phrase it this way? Let's ask the question, why would he phrase it in this way? I have manifested your name to these men. We can ask it this way. I'm glad you asked. How did Christ manifest the Father's name? Like, How did he manifest the Father's name? Because that's what he's saying. I've manifested your name to them. To manifest the name of God, it is to reveal the essential nature of God to man. So when he's saying, I've manifested your name, he's basically saying, I have revealed the nature of God to men. That men can know about God by looking at creation, but that doesn't mean they can know who God is by looking at creation. And so Christ is saying here, I have made the nature, the essence of God, known to men. And in one sense, Jesus himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, he is the manifestation of God. That he is the revelation of God's nature. Why? Because in Christ, the invisible took on visible. That in Christ, he became flesh and the the, the invisible God became visible. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 reminds us that, that Christ, speaking of Christ, that he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of the, of the Father. He is the exact representation of his nature. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, it reminds us as well that he is, speaking of Christ, the image of the invisible God. And later in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, it says that in him, in Christ, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. So Christ himself, he is the the full manifestation of God. All that God is, all God's essence, his attributes, it's found in Christ fully. And we can say the same thing about the Holy Spirit, that all of God's essence, attributes, fully in the Holy Spirit. We can say the same thing about the Father, all of God's essence, attributes, the Father. And yet, as scripture is clear, God is one, eternally existing in three persons. And in Christ, we see the invisible God made visible. 
But when he says here that I have manifested your name, I have made your nature revealed to men, he's not just speaking of just his presence, but he is referring to even all that he has sought, all that he taught, excuse me, and all that he worked in his ministry on earth. So when he's saying I revealed your nature, he's looking at not only who he is, but he's looking at what he's done, what he has spoken, all the miracles he's done. And all of these are meant to point to the fact that this is who God is. He's revealing to men who God is. This manifestation or the revealing was executed through his teaching. And that's why he says at the end of verse 6, as a result of this, they have kept your word. He's looking at his teaching. When it's a picture of this, if you go back a couple chapters to John chapter 6, at this point in, in, John, in the ministry of Jesus, in John's gospel, chapter 6, that's when Jesus' ministry takes a turn. Because many people are flocking to him, seeing his miracles, and then chapter 6 happens, and this is when you see many people like, oh, this is too much. I didn't ask for all this. He's talking about eating my flesh and drinking his blood. Like, wait, what is he talking about? No, I, I got to go find someone else. This is the turning point in John's gospel, because now people are going away. But look what happens. Even in the, in, in the sight of the manifestation of God before their eyes, many people are seeing his glory, and what do they do? They walk away. He says in verse, verse 60 of chapter 6, Therefore, when many of his disciples, right, this is not the 12, but many of his followers, when they heard this, said, Oh, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, 12, does this cause you to stumble? What then, if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. Why? Because Jesus knew from the beginning that there were those who they were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him, Judas. And he was saying, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. And so now you have many people turning away. He turns to his disciples and says, you're going to go too? Are you going to leave me too? But look what they say. They don't respond the same way that others responded. Because verse 66 says, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the 12, you do not want to go away also, do you? Look what Simon Peter said. Finally, he says something good. Simon Peter also answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. How did he come to know that? How did he come to know that you are the Holy One of God? Because Christ revealed God's nature to them. He taught them. He instructed them. He even demonstrated it through miracles. And they said, no, without a doubt, we know you have come from God. That he manifested himself to his disciples, and now he's praying in John chapter 17, Father, I have manifested your name to them, and now they have kept your word. That this was effectual in their life. They, they heard, they saw, and now they believed. And so the Lord certainly manifested God's name to his disciples in this. That, that, that Jesus so completely and perfectly revealed God's nature and character that even he would make shocking statements because of that. That he would say in John chapter 12, verse 45, that he who sees me 
sees the one who sent me. He says in John chapter 14, verse 9, he who has seen me has what? Seen the Father. That he could say that if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. And as you know, that the name of God was, was a sacred name to the Jews, that they wouldn't even utter the name of God. But Jesus comes on the scene, and he utters the name of God boldly. And he not only utters the name, but what does he do? He takes on that name for himself. So he can look them in the eye and say, before Abraham was, I am, in John 8, 48, 58. That he took on the name because he realized, I am him. I am Yahweh in flesh. He clearly manifested God's nature and made it clearly known to his disciples. So that he can say now, I have completed this work now in them. Because it wasn't for everyone, he says, to the men whom you have given me, I have manifested your name. Now, God is good, or excuse me, God is God, amen. He, can, he could have instantaneously downloaded all of the information that they needed to know by this point when he first came on scene. He could have said, follow me, they drop their net, and he like downloads everything they need to know about the faith in them at that moment. He could have done that. But what did Jesus do in his ministry? By the way, it's an example because how often did he just patiently, patiently, patiently walk with his disciples, endure with them through weak faith? He taught them. He even gave them word pictures in teaching them. He did miracles, and then he explained the miracles. He gave parables, then explained the parables, just how long-suffering the Lord was with his disciples, with his time with them on earth, and he taught them systematically, slowly, in patience, bearing with them. And he exemplified that. And so he's saying, I have manifested your name to them clearly. And they did. Because that's why Mark or Simon Peter says in his confession, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That it was revealed to him clearly. So again, General revelation reveals God's glory, as we know. General revelation meaning just the skies, creation. You look around you, even all the the discoveries of science, the new discoveries, they just point out the awe of a creator. And that's what it does. And that's what it should do. That creation should reveal to you God's presence, that there is a God. And that's what God intended to do. That's why Psalm 19, the heavens declare his glory. General revelation reveals to man that there is a God. But general revelation does not bring salvation to man. It basically indicts them because you have no excuse. General revelation revealed that there was a God. But what Jesus is talking about here is the special revelation. That I have manifested your name, your nature, and even your saving grace to these men. So that they know not only is there a God, but there is a God who saves. And that God who saves, saves in his son. And so he says clearly to that, that I have manifested. I have gave special revelation to them. Because you cannot know God if you do not know his son. That no one comes to the father except through him, John 14, 6. And so the manifestation of God's nature is shown clearly in the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is not, as I said, manifested to everyone. 
Because as I mentioned at the end of verse 6, they were yours and that you gave them to me. That he manifested this to the men whom the Father gave him. That they were precious to the Lord, belonging to the Father, and given to the Son to reveal God's nature in a saving way. Now these 12 men, or you can look at the 11, if you exclude Judas, like, these weren't like the best men of Israel. Like, it wasn't like he went to the cream of the crop. Like, he chose these men who were unworthy, and for whatever reason, in his sovereign mind, he called them to himself. That this is God's working. He chose them. They were not the 12 most righteous men. They were not the 12 good men, but they were chosen. And as we looked at last week, this love that Christ has for these this 12 men here, it preceded time. He loved them before the foundation of the earth. And he says now, I have now manifested your name. Now looking at the closing his earthly ministry, he can say, Father, I have made your nature known to them. They know who you are in a saving way. They know who I am. And now, Lord, I offer them up to you. So we see here, as he's looking at his priestly ministry here, we can look at it as completed because he says, I have done this work. Now, secondly, we're examining in terms of its effect. Because what happens now? What does it look like for someone who has witnessed the manifestation of God? Let's look at the, the, the effect now. It's term, the, his earthly ministry, his priestly ministry, in terms of its effect. What does it look like for someone who has witnessed the manifestation of God in a saving way? What is the outcome of that? In other words, what does God's eternal plan look like in time? This is plans preceding the foundation of the earth, but what does it look like now when someone has revealed, has been revealed to God's glory and now sees God's glory, and what does that look like in their life? In other words, we can ask, how do we know when we have truly seen Christ? Not know about Christ, how can you know when you have truly seen Christ in a saving way? This is what John does all throughout his gospel, and I love it because he balances out this whole tension of God's election and man's responsibility. But we don't want to walk away from this passage thinking that we're just moral robots. You know what I mean by that? Like, we're not moral robots. Like, God elected me, now I believe, and that's what I'm doing, right? Why are you doing that? Why do you believe? Well, because I'm elected. Like, we just leave it there, and it's just this heartless theology. Like, oh, yes, you believe because you're just pointing there to the doctrine of election, which is true. But don't look past now what happens in time in the soul of the one whom God regenerates. Because that's what he's looking at now, the effect now of that manifestation of his name. How do you know when someone has seen the glory of Christ? Because many people know about Christ, but how do you know when you have seen the manifestation of Christ's glory? I think that's what he answers now in this next verse, in verse 7. Because he starts it off with this one adverb. Now, but he's not transitioning his thought. He's not just moving to a different item now. This adverb there is like an adverb of time. Because now he's looking at now, in time, now at this point of time, they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. Having manifested his name, he's saying now at the present time, they know who I am. They know who you are. This is the effect that they don't just know about him, they just don't, they've just seen his miracles and just walked away, they know who he is. 
that there is a genuine salvation rescue mission taking place where this dead soul now is changed and now has genuine belief that it's not just robotic in nature. It is genuine at the heart. And so what happens now? He says in verse 7 is that they know that everything you've given me is from you. And he continues in verse 8 that the words which you have given me For the words which you have given me, I have given to them. And what do they do with it? They receive them. And not only that, and truly understood that I came forth from you. And not only that, and they believe that you sent me. Do you see the genuine transition here that's going on in someone's life? That they don't just know about Christ. He's saying here, now that I have manifested your name, they truly understand. They believe. They keep your word, as he said in verse 6 at the end. They have guarded your word, you could literally say. That there is a genuine heart transformation happening in time. He says, now they know that you sent me. Hear this. A saving faith involves believing that Jesus is divine. Because all of these things he's saying at this, in a sense is they truly understand that your words, that my words came from you. They truly believe that I came forth from you, that you sent me, and they truly receive them. And why did they receive Christ's words? It's because they realized that Christ's words were not man's words. They believe that Jesus is divine. You have to understand how important that is, is believing that Jesus is divine. I remember, I have a strange memory, and I remember the most random, specific details, conversations, and events from like when I was like four, five, and up. I just remember, I remember a lot of things, but at the same time, like, I forget what I was going to tell Eric, like, in the 10 steps it takes to get to his office. Like, so I forget random things, but, like, I have a really good memory, and I just remember just random specific details. I don't know why. But I do remember at one point coming across, a, a random, a comment on Facebook. I don't even remember what the post was on Facebook. I don't even remember who posted it. But I just remember this one random comment by not even, like, a Facebook friend, but someone who I knew. It was a comment, it was a post made by someone I went to college with for my undergrad at a a Christian university, and they were posting some sort of controversial subject, obviously, I don't even remember what it was, but it had something to do about this idea of just morality in our culture today, and I don't even remember what it was, but I do remember someone who posted a comment under that post, who I didn't know personally, but I knew about him from college, I saw him all the time. And I remember in responding to this moral issue in society, he commented, we no longer believe in the divinity of Jesus. And therefore, he used that as the basis to reject the moral obligations that people were trying to prove from Scripture. And I don't know why that stuck out to me, but I just remember, like, that was at least helpful for me to understand where he's coming from. Because he basically said, yeah, we don't believe that Jesus is divine. He believed that Jesus walked the earth because I think no one really can get around that historically, that there was a man named Jesus who walked the earth. So what he did was, instead of just saying that this Jesus was divine, what he said is, we reject his divinity. He was just a man. And if Jesus is just a man, then that means his words are no longer binding upon you. 
And his words are no longer binding upon me. So if you're using him as your basis of telling me how to live my life, that doesn't suffice for me. Because he rejected the divinity of Jesus. And it's at least helpful because at least you're being honest with where you're coming from. Because now I can understand the issue here. But that's what happens. And Jesus here saying is that these apostles, these men, they understood that I'm divine. And if Jesus is divine, there is great accountability with that. And the problem is as well today is that many people will talk about Jesus being divine, but the real proof of the pudding is if you say Jesus is divine, that divinity should be reflected in your life. For he's saying the effect here of manifesting his name, of seeing his glory, is not just being able to articulate the hypostatic union, not just being able to understand that Jesus is God and man, but if you're saying you have understood and seen the manifestation of Christ's glory, then you should say he is divine. And if he is truly divine and you say in all that it means, then that divinity should be reflected in how you live your life that it should change your life. That if Jesus truly is divine, which is what he's saying in verses 7 and 8, if he is divine, that divinity should be reflected in your lordship toward him. That you can't just say you've seen and you are a Christian without being changed as a Christian. The implication that if he is divine and that his words are from the Father and he came forth from the Father then he is not just one way to the Father, he is the only way to the Father, and he has your life. Because he said at the end of verse 6, he says, they have guarded, they have kept your word, they have treasured your word. And he's not only just speaking of his words, but he says here, literally you could say, they have kept the word yours. Because he's speaking of not just his words, he's speaking of they have kept, they have guarded the message. They have kept the message and they have guarded it. Because that's the picture of someone who has truly seen Christ, now believes in him and guards his word and treasures him and believes that he is divine from the Father and now all of my life is his. Don't say Jesus is divine if you do not bow the knee to his divinity in your life. It could be just a false profession. And that's what happened many times in ministry. But Jesus is excluding all others, and he's saying, no, they believe who I am. And that's what salvation does in someone. That its effect there is it is effectual. It causes someone to see who Jesus is, and now they truly believe, and they truly follow, and they willingly love him. They willingly follow. They want more of his glory. Why? Because his manifestation is inherently effectual. It calls to whomever he, in his own sovereign will, reveals it. So when you see his glory, you are drawn to him, because it is effectual in always accomplishing what it seeks to accomplish. And he says, they have done this. They have kept the message. They realize who the Lord Jesus Christ is. They knew his nature. They knew he came from God, and therefore they followed him. This, this phrase here, that you have sent me, is repeated time and time in John's gospel, where Jesus himself is saying that, don't you know I come forth from the Father? Don't you know I come from the Father? Jesus himself repeats that time and time again. Why? 
Because his whole point is saying here is that he's less than the Father, but no, he has the same authority as the Father. And if I came forth from the Father, don't you not understand who I am? Therefore, bow the knee. They had genuine faith now, these disciples, because of who he is. And this is what the effectual call of Christ does. I want you to hear this. This is what the call of Christ does in the believer. That when you come to Christ, there is a life change. There is a life change. Do you know how many people warm the seat of a pew every Sunday morning and ascend to the glory of Christ, but yet are deceived because they've truly not encountered his glory in a saving way? Do you know how many people are self-deceived, thinking that they are Christians, that they are born again, but there is no evidence of a life change? They say they believe, but that belief does not produce a following of him, that he says. It does not produce the keeping, the guarding of his word. There are many who are just self-deceived because they know Jesus, and they've prayed a prayer, or they go to church, and so therefore they think, I am safe but yet they have not truly encountered the divinity of Jesus Christ. But this is what his effectual call does. And it's not, as I said, a robotic call, because man must truly believe. He must truly keep. He must truly love. And so the call to man is to repent and believe. And that is the universal call to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That when you see him in his glory, the only response is to lay aside your sin and your works and to repent and believe upon him and him alone. And without that, no one can be saved. James Montgomery Boyce, a Presbyterian minister in Philadelphia, I think he died in the 60s, but he's commenting on this passage, said this way, How do you know if someone is truly elect? According to these verses, the only way to tell whether one is a Christian or not is to see whether he or she believes and continues in the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Instead of, let's just take off our sovereign glasses right now because we don't have them and we try to discern election. We can't see that. But how do we know if someone's truly elect? Do they believe, and we understand what belief means, and do they continue in the words of the Lord Jesus Christ? Belief and perseverance are key mark of someone's election. You say you're called, do you believe in him? And do you continue in his words? Because that perseverance is a mark of someone who has seen the glory of Christ. They believe and they follow him all the days of their life. They're not perfect. They stumble and fall. As Proverbs says, a righteous man falls seven times, but guess what? He gets back up. But is there belief and perseverance? And why is that? Because saving faith produces this in someone. His role in high priest, we see it, we examine it in its completion, we examine it in its effect. What does it do in the individual? And now let's examine his role as a high priest in terms of its scope. If you keep the context now of what's going on here, if this is true, if you have Christ, if he has manifested God's name, if they have received it, 
if he has done all this work for his disciples, then it only logically corresponds then, who will you pray for now? If you revealed your name to his disciples, they have kept your word. Who is on his mind now? Who's he going to pray for? His disciples. He does not pray for everyone. He prays for his believers. Look what he says here. The scope of his intercession is is for them. It's for those who, as he said, belong to the Father. It's to those whom he has manifested the name of God, to those who who, who he's drawn to himself, to those who he will soon soon shed his blood to the point of death for. The scope in these next verses here are very specific. Because he says in verse 9, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. He's asking for them. He's praying for them. Jesus now, even before he he called his disciples to himself, in Luke chapter 6, verse 12, it says clearly that Jesus prayed. He spent time praying even before he chose his disciples and called them. And now, before he's leaving, he's praying for them again. The scope now of his intercession is for them. Because he clearly says he's not interceding for the world. I do not ask for the world, but I ask for those whom you have given me. Now hear me, God does show a kind of love for the world, for everyone, believer and non-believer, that God shows a common grace toward everyone. He allows it to rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Mark chapter 10, verse 21, with the story of the young rich ruler who, who does not receive eternal life, it says that Jesus has compassion upon this individual. So he has a common grace for everyone, believers and non-believers. But scripture is also clear that he has a special and unique love for his bride, his church. That he died for his church. He gave his life for his church. He shed his blood for his bride. And he's praying now for the believing ones. And in this context, specifically his disciples. But he says later on in verse 20, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who also believe in me through their word. He's praying for his own. Because remember in verse 6, he says, they were yours, Father, and you gave them to me. And I want us to really see here who Christ is interceding for. He is not interceding for the world universal. Who is he interceding for? His words. For those whom the Father gave him. And the problem that I have is we get into debates about the theological implications of this passage, of what that means, that he's only praying for his own, and we lose sight of who he is praying for. Believer, he's praying for you. Do you see the intense, specific love that Christ has for his own? How scripture is clear that he loves his bride that he doesn't shed his blood for every single person. He sheds it for his own. Do you lose sight of what he's saying here in trying to win a theological argument? Christ loved his own, and he's praying for them, that the scope of his intercession is for those whom the Father gave him, and there is an intense love for those who believe upon him. His affectionate concern for his disciple is displayed in specifically praying for him. That the Lord is territorial for his own. They're my child. I died for him. He's mine. She is mine. 
And I die for her. I die for him. And I'll intercede for him. That he is territorial for his children and for good reason. Because as First Peter reminds us, he purchased you with his own blood. Now, if you were his disciples, how encouraging it would be to have heard this prayer being prayed for the Lord on your behalf. He's saying, as they're going to the world, he's leaving them. And they don't know where where they're going to go after this. He's leaving them, and they're hearing the Lord pray for them. I don't pray for the the world. I pray for them. Okay, my Lord is praying for us. That if he's praying for us, what encouragement, what strength, what efficacy that will do for us. Because if he's standing for us before the Father... I can go into the world. And so he underlines the passionate love that he has for his disciples as he prays for them. The Lord is demonstrating the accomplishment of the work that the Father gave him to reveal his name to his disciples. And now that revelation of the word will continue on through their apostolic ministry. Because as they go on, they're going to serve as the foundation for the church. Because when Jesus is praying here, not only is it benefiting them here, but Jesus is setting them up for success. Because hear this, his mission to the cross was not like, I hope things turn out well. Like, I hope these, I hope these, these 12 work out. Like, Simon Peter, I just hope he gets it together by the time I ascend. Right? This is not like a knock on wood, hopefully my, my cross is not in vain mission. Jesus didn't come here hoping things work out well. When he went to the cross and he said it is finished, he meant it is finished. No doubt in his mind. And this prayer here is the very manifestation of that truth, that he understood his work for his own was completed. And now he prays for them to persevere to the end. And guess what? They'll persevere to the end. He prayed for them. And that's why Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20 says that the church is built on what foundation? the apostles and the prophets. And now these men, having seen his glory, kept his word, and now being prayed for the preservation of their faith to establish the church, which now Jew and Gentile, now one in Christ, come in, all because now it began with this prayer. Keep them, Lord. And so after this, he says in verse 10, all, because that's true, All things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. He ends this this, this portion here with another assertion of who he is. And just, just read that again. Like, what is, you hear what he said? All things are mine, are yours, and yours are mine? If I were to have you over for dinner, and I welcome you to the house, and I say, here, come on in. Make yourself at home. You know, everything here is yours. And you're like, oh, man, thanks, man. That's, that's so kind of you. So hospitable. Like, all things, all this, is my, all, this is, all this is mine, it's yours. Make yourself at home. Thanks, Chris. And then I follow up with, and everything at your house is mine. <laughs> you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. I came over. Like, you'd be like, wait a minute. I, I agree with the first part, but the second part there, what, what you're saying there? But Jesus here himself is saying now, All of mine is the Father's. Okay, we can ascend to that. Anyone can. Yes, okay. But then he has the boldness there to say afterward, all that is yours 
is mine. He asserts there his deity, that he can say, he's the only one can say, not only is all of mine yours, rightly so, but all of yours is mine. And he's not just speaking of the world and its possession, but in the context here, he's speaking of the people. All of your ones, all of the ones you saved, they're yours and mine. And that's why he says in John chapter 10, if you're in the Father's hand, no one can pluck you out. And he says almost in the same breath, if you're in my hand, no one can pluck you out. What's his is the Father's, what's the Father's is his. This is a clear claim to his divinity. And he's saying here, all of yours is mine and mine is yours. But even more than that, he is glorified in them. And you just ponder and think, how is the Lord Jesus Christ glorified in you? Just look at yourself. You're worthless. (laughs) We're nothing. We are nothing. And he's saying he's glorified in us? That God is glorified in us? How is God glorified in us? He's glorified in the redemption of the sinner as his penalty, as his payment for the price of our redemption is credited now to our account. And God is glorified in that he can take a worthless sinner who brought nothing to the table, who was worthy of hell for all eternity, and he can say, no, I've washed you in the blood, and now I am glorified that God is just, that God saves, that Christ is good, that he is a loving God, a righteous God, a just God, a merciful God, a faithful God, a God who sent his son to the cross, a God who was buried, a God who was raised, a God who was a a God who is returning, and a God who is interceding for you right now. How is he glorified? He is glorified in nothings like us, in the work of his son. And he says, I am glorified in them. As the mediator, he is glorified in our salvation. How is this possible? Because of what he's done. That's why Jesus says in John 10, verse 30, that I and the Father are one. So as we looked at this, this, this work of his high priestly ministry, we see, we viewed it in terms of its completion. We saw that it's an effect, and we looked at it in its scope. In other words, we can say it this way. His priestly ministry, his high priestly ministry, it's completed, it's effectual, And it's personal. Following these verses, the Lord will begin to make specific petitions on their behalf. Because then he will begin to ask specific things for them. We didn't see any of them yet. But after this now, he'll begin to make specific petitions for the disciples. But before doing so, he just spends time demonstrating how his work was a work that produced a mission accomplished. And thus setting up his disciples for, and everyone else who will believe through them, for divine success. He sets them up for success. As a reminder, as I've said multiple times already, he is not just the high priest for these disciples. But beloved, he is your high priest. He's your high priest. Let's make it even more personal. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 reminds us that Christ, he ever lives to make intercession for those who draw near to God through him. That in Christ, you have a high priest. As Hebrews 9.24 reminds us that Christ entered into heaven itself, 
now to appear before the face of God for us. That Christ is your high priest. And as we're reminded this morning during worship, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, it says, if anyone does sin, you have an advocate with the Father. Christ Jesus the righteous. That as Christ being our high priest, one thing we should remember and rejoice in day and day out, believer, is that because he is your high priest, he is the basis of your forgiveness. And that forgiveness never goes away. That it is washed under his blood. That he stood before you and bore the wrath of God in your place, believer. That if you have a high priest with God, every single time you sin, it's as if the high priest says to the Father, put it on my account. Put it under my blood. It's under my blood. I covered it. I bore the wrath already. I took on the wrath in full. Forgiven. Forgiven, 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 forgiven. He is the high priest who is sufficient for you day in and day out. So you're reminded of your desperation, but how that desperation is met in the perfect high priest. That even in Israel, when the high priest sinned, it was almost as if their sin impacted the whole nation. That when the high priest sinned, that was a big deal because the the, the means to atone for that sin was just the same as if the whole nation sinned. But you have a high priest who never sinned, who is righteous, who is perfect. And you can come before the Father every moment and say, Father, I come in the name of Jesus who bore the wrath for me, who covered me with his blood, who stands before me. And brings me to your presence. As Hebrews chapter 4 says that he is a high priest. I can come to him not only in my sin and asking for forgiveness. But I can come to him whenever I have need. That I can come to God on the basis of our high priest. And receive grace and mercy in my time of need. And I don't know what your time of need looks like. Your time of need will look different from Sally's time of need. It will look different from John's time of need. It will look different from, from Michael's time of need. But whatever your time of need is, your high priest is. That you have it in him. And he never ceases to stand and to stand righteously and perfectly for you. So do not forget who your high priest is. And as we just saw a glimpse of his ministry in these four verses here, we see his greatness and his glory as a sufficient high priest. That we can rightly glory in Christ's sovereignty. Because we know that he saves us and is in control of everything and in everyone. But we must be equally aware of his intercession that he has and that he ever makes to live for us. He always is living to make intercession for us. We must be equally aware of the intimate concern and care that Christ has for you. And he stands ready to help in our time of need. This is our high priest Remember, believer, your high priest. We need to see his sufficiency, his goodness. And just as he is so faithful to his own, he remains faithful to you today and tomorrow and forevermore because he is the one who is coming back. And when when he descends from his throne and when he comes back to this earth and makes all things right, we will share in his glory and reign with him. And all will be well because our high priest has returned. Let's look to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your truth. 
And God, we have no other desire but to know more of Christ. We are so thankful for the mediating work done upon our behalf. And all we can do, Lord, is appeal to you in his name. And in his name, as scripture reminds us, that all of the promises of God find their yes in him. And so, God, we pray that you would give us a greater appreciation and a joy and a worship for the Lord Jesus Christ. This is in his name we pray. Amen.